Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Back in the days when I ran a physics institute, I used to invoke the two cultures quite often, proudly telling anyone who'd listen that in stark contrast to most scientific organizations that willfully constrain themselves in traditional disciplinary silos, our progressive new initiative was bent on breaking down arbitrary sociological and academic barriers to the manifold benefit of all. It was all, if I do say so myself, pretty inspirational stuff. And after a few years, I got to the point of being able to smoothly deliver the message to maximum effect. There was only one problem. I had never actually read the two cultures, and, like pretty much everyone else, was merely invoking a simplistic, time-worn argument that I had naively assumed it was all about. In actual fact, however, as University of Cambridge intellectual historian and literary critic Stephen Collini incisively demonstrates, the real story of the two cultures turns out to be a good deal more subtle and a good deal more interesting. I had never heard of Levis before, so right. candidate admission number one. Yeah. Um, I had heard of Snow, um, and I had heard of the two cultures, but, um, but I realized that I didn't know a tremendous amount uh, about it. And uh, Actually, there was a funny, funny story that happened to me when I, I, I was in a bookstore. In fact, this led to me contacting you. I was in a bookstore about nine months ago, and um, maybe six months ago, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. I was, uh, I was going through the the bookshelves, and I, and I saw, here's this copy of The Two Cultures, the Canto edition of what it is right. that you did. And I thought to myself, I should probably read this, because this is one of these things that I have some basic idea about, and I should probably buy it. Um, but then I thought to myself, it's almost a sense of embarrassment. I don't know if you ever have this. Well, this is, this, this is so much part of general culture that at some level I should already know this. I shouldn't really have to buy this. And it's, there's some sense of it being... Uh, somewhat embarrassing, almost, that I'm going, going up to the counter saying, do you have a book called War and Peace? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. So, so I, I had this little battle with myself, and then I thought, well, that's just ridiculous and silly, and I, I, I'm pretty sure I haven't actually read this, so I should, it's not very big, and I should pick it off and, yeah. and, and read it. Um, and then when I went to the cash to pay, the, the gentleman at the cash said, oh, C.P. Snow, The Two Cultures, do you think it's just as relevant today? as it was when he wrote it. And I said, well, actually, um, I've never read it. That's why I'm buying <laughs> right. it back. Right. And then he turned to me and he said, well, I've never read it either. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and that, that gave me a oh, sense yeah. of how this has permeated the yeah. public consciousness so that most people are aware, they have a general sense of, of, of what this debate or what C.P. Snow actually said. They have some, some simplistic or, or some cursory level knowledge of it. But what I wanted to start off asking you is, is just, well, what actually happened? Tell me, tell me what C.P. Snow did. Tell, tell me, let's start off with the very, very basics, and let's assume, like most people, uh, we don't actually know exactly what, what, uh, what C.P. Yeah. Snow's lecture was all about. And so, yeah. so, so let's start from there. 
Okay, I, I like about your story that uh, the uh, man at the cash desk had the assumption that you could have quite an interesting conversation <laughs> exactly. about this, exactly. even though neither of you had read it. <laughs> exactly. the, and, and I think that's partly not just that he works in a bookstore and you look like the kind of person you could have that conversation <laughs> with, but, but also I think because the phrase has come to stand for a set of issues. Even people who've never read Snow's actual text think there is something quite interesting here. Maybe they think it's to do with the place of science in our culture, or maybe they think it's something to do with how we should organize education. But some, they're willing already to be engaged just by the phrase without even having uh, read the thing itself. Right. So yeah, let's try and go back a bit and um, give you a sense of what he, I think, was really saying. So it might be helpful first if I just say a word or two about how Snow got to this point. Yeah, yeah, because Snow trained initially as a research scientist, as a chemist, and his career was not altogether successful. He had one or two setbacks. He claimed some discovery that didn't quite stand up. And he progressively moved more towards uh, administration of things. He moved into, when the Second World War started, recruiting scientists for government service. And then after the war, he carried on recruiting scientists into the civil service. At the same time, through the 1930s and into the 1940s and 50s, he was writing novels, and really quite successfully. Mm. So when he got invited to give this high-profile lecture at Cambridge in 1959, he already had quite a reputation as a novelist. He was known to be somebody who was a trained scientist, and in fact was thought to have a bit more of a scientific reputation and standing than he really did have. He hadn't right. been a practicing scientist for some time, but he, he came from that background. And so he was able to, in a way, set himself up as, if you like, having a foot in both camps, or at least being an authority who could speak about these things in a way that not so many people could. And that, I think, was one thing, was a crucial thing that contributed to the, to the success and um, the kind of attention this lecture got. And I think what, what Snow was most animated by was the thought that the application of technology to bettering the world is going to become more and more important to feeding those in, in the less prosperous parts of the world, to developing the economies of the more prosperous parts of the world, and that the people who were in a position of influence and power in Britain, not just in Britain, elsewhere as well, but he mainly concentrates on Britain in that lecture. Yeah. Uh, the people in those positions were, by and large in his view, not scientifically trained, not really familiar enough with the possible benefits of science and how scientific thinking worked. And so he could see, he thought, that many of the advantages of the use of science and technology were just not going to be realized, right. that people who were ignorant of them were going to be making wrong sorts of decisions. Perhaps even and worse than that, I mean, scorn sometimes. I mean. Well, that's the thing, because he then goes back from that and says, well, look, what's happened here is we've, grown, we've had two cultures grow up, really, where those who are educated in what he calls the traditional literary culture are often those he thought became the most influential and positions of power. I should say, I think we could take issue with that. That's not necessarily very accurate about Britain or the United States for that matter in the 1950s. We could come back to that. But, mm -hmm. but I think he saw that as, in some ways, the traditional dominant culture with a literary formation. And then over here, all those who were trained in science. Um, and that the, as you say, the evaluation in the society at large was that the literary culture was somehow culture, with a capital C, was, was respectable and uh, something that people could aspire to and own up to, and that the scientific culture, in Snow's perception of this, was 
uh, looked down upon a bit, was right. somehow slightly shabby, slightly utilitarian. And one of the impulses, I think, in this famous lecture is really to want to assert the standing and the uh, importance for the future of the world, not just in intellectual terms, but in terms of um, social and economic development as well, of the whole world of science and technology. And, and in, in some way to uh, minimize, if not to overcome, what he saw as this damaging divide. I mean, that's, I, th I think that's a reasonably accurate and a reasonably fair account. I think you'd have to say, as you read the lecture more closely, he actually wants to assert the priority of the scientific culture over the literary right. culture. Uh, it's not so even-handed as all that. Right, but, it, but even, uh, even before we get there, which is, as you say, moving a little bit further, he, he does make this uh, uh, illustrative comment exactly along the lines of what you're saying, specifically, at least that was one of the things that had stood out with me, which is this notion that how many people who are not of a scientific persuasion are able to recite or give, give evidence of knowledge of the second law of thermodynamics, which is the equivalent right. of, of being familiar with the work of Shakespeare right. or something, something like that. So there's, the, um, and, and, and again, in the public consciousness, I think that part pervades, at least to me, there was a sense of what is the two cultures about? Well, we have, uh, we have art, and uh, we have the humanities, and we have the sciences. And for far too long, the humanities uh, were considered uh, more important, uh, than, uh, and, and you're a more cultured individual right. if, if you come from the humanities. And the scientists are just these geekish, number-crunching individuals that, okay, they can do a few calculations, but they're not really cultured in the broad general sense of, uh, of things. But before, before we get to... to uh, Snow's scientific triumphalism or, or, yeah. or images thereof. You mentioned something, th this notion of the, um, the importance for the planet, the importance for humanity, the importance to be able to better mankind of recognizing science. This was something which, uh, which completely floored me when I read because I had no idea this was even spoken about at all. Uh, and this seemed to have been actually quite a major theme in, in, in the two, yeah, two cultures. that's right. I mean, if we go back to your man at the cash desk in the bookshop, right. I, mean, I suspect the association he had with this, if you'd said, well, what do you think Snow did say, right. would never have mentioned that absolutely. question of social and economic development right. no, Nor myself, no, I, I, absolutely. No, no, I think that is part of the... So that's why I say I think there's grown up um, a set of associations, a set of assumptions about what the two cultures stands for, which uh, focuses almost entirely on this matter of the, the educational arrangements and then the sort of social evaluation of the two castes of mind or two forms of practice. Um, but when you, get, when you read the lecture, as you said, and especially when you get towards the end, right. I think you'll remember that once he set up this account of the divide, um, what he then really focuses in on is what's going to happen to the world. Um, and... And in some ways, he draws a, a, a parallel between the benefits that came to what then became the developed world through the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th, early 19th century, and the benefits that could now come to the undeveloped world if the most recent forms of technology could be fully exploited to um, develop industry and, and agriculture in those places. So in a way, I think the... Uh, lecture is kind of end-driven, that that's what the state he wants right. to get to. The diagnosis is of what's holding it back, in his right. view. Right. And there are two things that are, that are interesting to me about that. One is, as, as you wrote, the assumption that this was actually a necessary activity. It wasn't a question of whether we should help people right. in the poor. It was a question of how do we do it. We should absolutely do it, and yeah. how do we do it? Our, uh, there was this, uh, a moral 
there, there was a, a clear moral justification or, or, or impetus to be able to do that. Uh, and the sense of frustration that, that uh, those who didn't have proper scientific respect or orientation uh, would in fact uh, be not contributing to this at all or not contributing in the, in the best possible way. But let's get back to this notion of scientific triumphalism that I cut you off on. So in your view, is uh, it, it seems to, well, let me start again. So uh, the one thing that I picked up is, is this notion of, of wanting to distance himself, align himself with the scientists and distance himself from what he called the literary intellectuals, yeah. calling them Luddites and, 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 yeah. and, and all the rest of this sort of thing. And this is, this is curious because, as you said, it seemed like at the time he was seen by the, by the great majority of people to be more on the literary side of things than he was on the, uh, yeah. on the scientific side of things. But this, was, this clearly seemed to be his agenda, at least when I read this as, as a layperson looking yeah. at this. Yeah. Well, uh, the first thing I would say is um, people think that the two cultures talks about the divide between the sciences and the, what we generally call the humanities, right. thinking about that mainly in university terms perhaps. It's interesting, Snow doesn't really quite set it up like that in the sense that his other group are, as you say there, the literary intellectuals. So the examples are nearly always novelists or poets, right. not actually scholars in universities, uh, and that it is only literature. I mean, not historians and philosophers and students of ancient languages and so on. It's not that side of things that he's talking about. Um, and that, I think, makes his case um, in some ways much less persuasive because the idea that... Um, the so-called dominant elites in British society in the middle of the 20th century are making their decisions because they've been formed by reading D.H. Lawrence or T.S. Eliot or whatever. You know, it just doesn't really look... You, you can say, yes, often they were people who went to, let's say, Oxford and Cambridge and studied classics or English or history. That's, that may be true. They didn't study science and they may be a bit underinformed about that. But his picture of what's so damaging or backward-looking about the literary culture is framed around examples from these writers and a, and a particular generation of writers too. You know, mm -hmm. it's the what people call the high modernist generation, the, the writers who came to prominence in the 1910s to 1930s really, who famously often had very conservative, sometimes reactionary, sometimes even quasi-fascist political affiliations. Right. And so Snow is able to say, look, these people, you know, they, they point us in a terrible direction. This is what's so backward looking about the literary culture. And then to slide over and say, well, then this represents the traditional culture. And then by contrast, part of his evaluation of the scientific culture is, remember that famous phrase, he says, the scientists have the future in their bones. Mm. You know, they are right. forward looking and they are positive about the prospects for humanity. Right. Uh, whereas these literary intellectuals, the reasons they're Luddites is not just that they're ignorant, but they actually resist. Right. The they have the past in their bones. They have the past. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, they've got osteoporosis. Right. <laughs> yeah. there, there is something that he says, uh, uh, so I'd like to move on to the reactions and so forth right. and, and, and set it up that way. Um, but the, there was something that he said that, that personally did resonate a little bit with me. He, he makes a mention at the beginning of when he talks, it, part of this is, is asserting his own authority. I realize he talks to this famous person and that famous person. But he mentioned a, a brief conversation that he had with G.H. Hardy when Hardy says, he muses that the word intellectual is being thrown mm. around an awful lot these days. Um, 
and uh, and it doesn't seem to include people like me. Uh, or this mm. was in the 30s, presumably when he was. Right. So the, the lecture yeah. was in the 50s, late 50s. But this was in the 30s when yeah. he encountered Hardy. Um, and there might be something to that. I mean, there is a certain sense that if one uses the word intellectual these days, I can't speak for for, for those days, but you don't. Uh, the image that comes to mind when you think of an intellectual is not uh, not a chemist, or at least uh, I don't right. think, or, or not yeah. a mathematician. Yeah. Uh, and and so one can imagine that there is a certain umbrage which is being taken by by uh, famous uh, or perhaps not so famous scientists or mathematicians. And so in that sense, that Snow is perhaps reflecting a more common theme among the scientific community. It's not just his own perception. Maybe, maybe there is some groundswell of, of Right. of resistance yeah. that's coming yeah. through. Well, I think one first thing I would say there is that being called an intellectual is not always a desirable mm, thing. Sure. In, British, in British culture in particular, <laughs> I think, in the, in the middle decades of the century. So, right. you know, if they're not, the scientists might feel they got off lightly right. in this respect. <laughs> okay. But I think the other thing I would say is, I think well, that's broadly right, as you put it there. But uh, if you look just slightly more closely, a lot of the figures who engaged in public debate in some way from a position of cultural authority in those middle decades were in fact scientists. I mean, if we think of people like J.D. Bernal or mm. Haldane or up to the generation of Peter Medawar or people like this, uh, they were people who had a voice in, in public debate and a lot of, as we would now say, media exposure who were scientists. So uh, I think very often, Snow kind of puts his thumb in the scale a bit to, to accentuate the contrast. Right. But broadly, I think you're right, that, that he is here voicing something which a lot of ordinary practical scientists at the time would have felt. Both that what they did was a little derogated or looked down upon in some way, and even if they wouldn't always make this entirely explicit, actually they thought what they did was in some way more reliable knowledge, more exact, and more useful. Mm -hmm. And I think he's giving voice to that cluster of feelings altogether. Right, and more useful not only for the people in, in, in that particular society, namely England and so forth, but more useful right. broad brush through, right. uh, exactly. on a planetary it's level. Through humanity, yeah. yeah right. That's right. So he gives this talk in 1959, and then what happens? How is it, how is it received? <laughs> what sort of, right. what sort of uh, effect does it have? Well, one thing. It, that happens is it's received internationally. Um, I mean, you remember in the lecture itself, he, he makes quite a few international references and tells how he's been to Russia and seen what they're doing there and um, right. what's happening in the United States. And of course, it's important to remember, I think, that these are the Sputnik years where the sense of international scientific competition come collaboration is, is quite a hot issue. Right. Um, and so the, the lecture is taken up not just in Britain but all over the world and taken up as really announcing uh, a theme of, of real consequence for the future of the planet. Um, that here's somebody pointing to uh, an aspect of our cultural arrangements and especially our educational arrangements which may in some ways be holding us back. Um, it wasn't that everybody was favorable about it. There were, there were certainly critics, but I think the broad picture would be to say that in the few years immediately after it was given in 1959, it helped to project Snow into the position of being something of a sage or prophet whose opinions on everything then were very eagerly solicited. And as I say, the fact that he was known to be a successful novelist and a trained scientist 
added to the authority, I think. People mm -hmm. didn't look too closely at that, but they thought, here's somebody who knows both worlds very well uh, and is in high-level administration. He understands about politics and running things, and he's pointing to a real problem here. And I think that was probably the single most dominant and positive form of reaction to it. And, and what happened in terms of uh, acceptance of the ideas within the academic structure? You mentioned about how, how perhaps, um, perhaps there would be, this would point us in the direction that we would give different or newer, better emphasis towards what we would be teaching or how we would uh, teach different things or, or how we would, was there anything concrete in that period of time? Did curricula change at all? Was there a certain sense that we're going to at least enfold some of these, uh, these aspects of what it is that he's saying? We're going to give more credence to what it is that he's saying? Yeah. We're going to change things in some way? Yeah. Well, I guess as always, he's not in fact saying something wholly distinctive. Mm -hmm. He's picking up themes here that others have been saying. And in Britain, Britain had and still has a more specialized secondary education system than many countries, much more than the United States, for example, so that students in their last two or three years at high school may narrow down to the study of only some humanities disciplines or only some science disciplines. Right. And then when they go to university, will more or less exclusively study just one of these. So in addressing the arrangements in Britain, he's addressing really one of the most specialized educational systems in the world. And because it's been so specialized, of course, it's generated a lot of anxiety and reflection on whether this is desirable and whether it shouldn't be changed. So right. that was already, in a way, it going works. on. Right. Um, and Snow gave it a, a very big push. But in the early 1960s, as you may know, was a time when uh, of a whole wave of new universities were founded in Britain's great expansion of the system, sure. the kind of expansion that had happened a bit earlier in the States, more in the years after 1945, but didn't happen in Britain so much until the early mid-1960s. And one of the things that uh, was taken up in those new universities was the hope, not just from Snow, but certainly often Snow was cited, the hope that there would be a way for the curriculum to allow people who are going to specialize in science to do a bit of work in the humanities and vice versa, people in the humanities to have some exposure to science. And quite a few universities in that period uh, set up courses in this. And in fact, uh, my first teaching job was at the University of Sussex, which mm. was one of these new red universities. Red brick universities, right? Um, well, are they weren't red brick? No, I mean, I, I thought the red brick ones the, were there. The red brick ones, ones on the whole were the ones which were founded in the late 19th century. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, oh, like, I thought the red brick ones were in the 60s. No, no, oh, no the okay. terminology in Britain anyway there was that, <laughs> that the ones founded in the big in industrial cities like Birmingham and Leeds, Leeds and, and all that. Those were the red brick ones. Those were the red brick universities. And then in 19, well, starting in 1961 with Sussex, it was the first of a group which, which in fact, though the name didn't stick as well, were called the plate glass universities. Oh, really? Yes, because yeah, well, they are, you know, really you can imagine. <laughs> uh, the reason. Uh, but so, so anyway, when I went to Sussex in 1974, there was still um, a thing called the Art Science Scheme, which was an attempt to get all students who were in the sciences to do some course from the humanities side of the right. university and, and vice, vice versa. versa. Right. It was, I have to say, even then, on its last legs, um, it, it was quite hard to get people to teach it. The, the pressure of professionalization and specialization told against it. Um, students quite often were a bit resistant to it. They saw it just as a sort of extra. Just for, for first-year students, presumably. Yeah. Anyway, it was just basic yeah. physics for poets, as we would say, here, or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, right? something like that. Um, but it 
it was very hard to make it work against the grain of the institution okay. as a whole, where people were either studying one subject or right. specialists in teaching one subject. Yeah. Um, so to go back to your question, I think that Snow gave a push to attempts to tinker with the basic structure, but I don't think it really in the long term had much effect in changing that structure. Sure. Well, it's difficult for one person, but he did have some, 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 some non-trivial effect, oh, sure. you would, you would yeah. probably say. Yeah. So, so he gives this lecture. It's generally very well received, uh, certainly in line with much of, much of what, uh, at least some of the current thinking is at the time. Uh, and then a few years later along comes mm -hmm. someone else with a, with a, a rather different yeah. perspective on things. Well, they enter stage <laughs> left, <laughs> F.R. Leavis. Um, so F.R. Leavis was a literary critic. Um, he'd spent his whole career teaching at Cambridge. And uh, he did not respond to Snow's lecture when it was given or when it was published. But in 1962, three years after Snow's lecture, Leavis was invited himself to give another named lecture in Cambridge. And he decided the time had come to take the measure of what was by then becoming really quite an influential statement by Snow. Now, I suppose it's important to say that Leavis was a particular kind of literary critic. He passionately believed in the power of great literature to open up our world and our experience, if read sufficiently attentively mm -hmm. and with the kind of uh, disciplined attention that an education in English literature could give you. But he didn't believe in the kind of scholarly apparatus, the overemphasis on knowledge about the biographical or contextual details. He mm -hmm. believed very much in the personal response to it, if it was of the right disciplined kind. Mm -hmm. And so he'd become uh, a really quite fearsome controversialist because he always wanted to press anybody he engaged with, say, well, what do you really believe? Where, you know, have, hmm. How do you respond to this? Um, and, and he could do so with a good deal of belligerence. And he was himself by then something of a semi-public figure. He, he, was, he was quite well known, not as well known probably as Snow, but he was known beyond uh, academia, certainly. And so then he read this lecture and he was appalled. He was appalled, first of all, because he thought that the uptake of Snow, the, the success that the lecture had, showed how devalued and empty a lot of the categories of public acceptance really were. That if people thought this was a serious analysis of a serious problem, well, then, then, then we're in trouble. Right. You know? <laughs> um, because he point, and he in the lecture, he, as you know, in his own lecture, he unsparingly <laughs> points out ways in which he thinks that, that Snow's formulation is vacuous, mm. uh, a lot of it is second, third rate. Um, and he wants to say, what about this reputation and status that Snow has? You know, how deserved is that? Well, you know, Snow is a novelist. Leavis can barely contain himself at this point. You know, the novels, he thinks, are just hopeless. Um, they've got this unspeakable dialogue. They've got all these clunky stage directions. He's not somebody who really understands the imaginative power of fiction. What he does is give you this uh, low-grade social narrative and so on. Uh, is, he, is Snow really bringing the voice of science to bear here? Well, of course, Leavis himself is not a trained or informed scientist, but he says, 
you know, I think scientific reasoning is marked by its rigor and its precision and its power. Do I see that in Snow's lecture? No, a lot of cliches, a lot of slack reasoning and so on. So he, he completely savages, as it were, um, Snow's standing, his claim to do this. Uh, but I think, you know, just as people don't remember about Snow's lecture, that driving it in the end was this concern with some kind of human betterment, the application of technology. I think people don't remember about Levis's attack, that it's not just a, a personal attack on Snow, um, or even on Snow's reputation, because Levis too is fundamentally preoccupied with what we as a society posit as the ends of human life. What are the values and purposes we should really be striving for? And right. he says, what picture you get from Snow's lecture about this is really a kind of empty prosperity. The only goal is, he picks up a phrase that um, Snow uses rather lightly in his own lecture, the only goal is jam today and more jam tomorrow. Right. Um, a kind of vacuous prosperity that has got no sense of what's worthwhile, what's really a human form of flourishing. And that Snow is complicit in this, that Snow is, is really just endorsing this wholeheartedly, in fact. Wholeheartedly. I mean, yes. he's pushing it. Yes. Um, and that it is the dominant uh, set of values of our public culture. Right. So, Levis, as always, it's, this is a feature of Levis's writing more generally, but very much in this lecture, sets himself up as someone who is taking on this powerful, established discourse. This is, this is how politics, the media, and our society more generally talk. These are the values that are set up for public admiration, and I am trying, I leave it, I'm trying to call us back to some truer sense of what really matters. And where will we find that? Well, fundamentally, our best guides are going to be in the great writers. Right. And so he's not, as some people think, saying uh, education should all be in the humanities and the sciences don't matter. He's, he's actually, in some respects, very respectful of real science. What he thinks of is good scientists doing good science. What he's not respectful of is somebody pontificating Absolutely. on the basis of an association with science about the importance of science over literature. And, and in that way, he is, a, he is sort of fighting back on literature's behalf, but not in order to, to eliminate science by any means, but in order to find somewhere where we can look, where we'll get some kind of stimulus and guidance about how to think about living. Right. There are two things as, as you're talking that, that uh, certainly came to my mind. One is, you alluded to this earlier, one is that uh, he casts aspersions not only on Snow's ability as a novelist, um, uh, for which he is eminently qualified as a literary critic, but also his credentials as a scientist, which, as you mentioned at the beginning, turned out to be, on closer inspection, quite a bit murkier than mm. one had been led to believe. Mm. He had left science rather precipitously. There was some sort of scandal that was involved. It wasn't as if he... he willfully gave up this great, glorious, shining scientific career to become a literary figure because he could do so many things at the same time. But in fact, there were, there were uh, serious concerns that he, was, he moved there, uh, not completely willingly out of his own, out of his own choice, but more as, a, as an aspect of convenience. So there was that, that aspect of, of, his, of his character. But this was, to me, this was all of a piece of this notion of what an authority figure is and why society regards people right with authority, with, with this uncritical, unflinchingly 
uh, positive approach because they are effectively believing what they are told. This, this individual is brought in as an authority figure, and so I will, in the most naive and trusting and uncritical manner, necessarily assume that they are uttering pronouncements befitting a great man and a great sage and so forth. And so, although his attacks are, are shockingly personal and vitriolic and, and unsparing, um, which make for fantastically interesting reading, by yes. the way. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's very good fun in that way. Yeah. But there, there, there clearly is a sense where he's not just having a go at this person right. because he wants to rip this individual apart. He wants to rip the whole idea of authority um, figures and trusting authorities uh, that, that, that are given to the public apart. He wants intelligent members of, of, of the public to be much more critical in their assessment of why people are in a position of being able to make grand pronouncements in the first place. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, and in fact, in, in Levis's construction of it, really the thing is almost a vicious circle because uh, somebody in, in Levis's view, like Snow, is made an authority figure in part because he gives the society back the cliches that exactly. it wants to right. hear. Um, and where does society get these cliches from? Well, they grow up from accumulation from these various authority figures who've articulated them in the first place. And so somebody who is offering something uh, that doesn't fit in so well with this, something that may be very antagonistic to the dominant um, conceptions and values of the society, in Leavis's view, is probably not going to be made into a sage and authority figure in the first place. There are right. only certain convenient voices. Now, I mean, I'd have to say, looking from the outside, I think Leavis overstates that a bit. That the world of, of public debate is more various than that, I think. And, and as, in fact, Levis himself showed, he, by any measure, got a hearing, although he thought he was... Because of his reputation. Because of his reputation and because of the intrinsic power of what he had to say. Mm. I mean, it's, he, he wasn't articulating just the platitudes of the time, of course, but, but he, 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 a lot of people read him and quite a lot saw that there was some force to what he had to say. So I think he overstates that a bit, but you're absolutely right that his real preoccupation with that bit of the lecture is uh, that the mechanism by which somebody gets this kind of celebrity status as a, as a sage is what we need to undermine in some way. It's no good just saying, I disagree. It's no good even just saying, I, in general, disagree with C.P. Snow. You've got to somehow take the podium away from under him so he doesn't right. have the, the right to stand to begin on with. that. Yeah. Right. Uh, and there shouldn't be such a podium. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting hearing you talk, again, going back to the, to the naive bookseller or the naive book purchaser, <laughs> um, who thinks, ah, yes, C.P. Snow, the two cultures, uh, humanities or the arts and the sciences should, should listen to one another more, and there really shouldn't be this, this, this divide. And perhaps an aspect of uh, science is more important and, and, uh, than it's been uh, given its due. That's not a coherent sentence. But anyway, science yeah. is more important than it's been recognized to be. Right. Um, and that's the general sense, I think, that most people, myself certainly included, have. And then to back up and say, well, actually, one of Snow's central th theses was this notion that uh, uh, science is vital to improving the prosperity of mankind and and that we if we ignore uh, in our educational practices if we ignore in our overall assessments the 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 wonderful impact that science can have we do that at our peril and we 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 do that at the peril of millions of people across right. the globe who who need so much uh, technological assistance and practical assistance from us and that uh, this is a key way to to improve prosperity and on the other hand we have Levis who yes 
everyone uh, who, who, who knows about the arguments has vicious personal attack and so forth. But a central aspect of what he is saying is we should be regarding uh, societal triumph in more ways than merely economic ways. Right. We, we, our values should, be, should certainly include that, but, uh, but, but that's a very, very trite and pat and, and unsophisticated and inappropriate way to regard the entire human condition. And these are two messages which are very, very different than than what your naive book purchaser or, 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 book, or bookseller might have, might have had. That's right. And in fact, as you know, the Levis uh, lecture is even less about that traditional notion of the two cultures than, than right. Ms. Snow's. Right. Um, there's very little in there about educational arrangements and how to deal with that at all. Right. Um, and, and the account you've just given is spot on, I think. And one of the ways that's focused is in Snow and Levis's different evaluation of and response to the whole question of the Industrial Revolution. Because in Snow, as we said earlier, the Industrial Revolution is really the first stage in which the exploitation of science and technology starts to give these societies lift off towards prosperity. And Snow gives a very positive account of the whole history. Uh, he says something about, you know, wherever the poor have been given the chance, they've walked off the land and into the factories, and that's their route to a better life. And it it's true that when you reread the snow, there is something very blandly optimistic about this. It just right. does look like more jam tomorrow, it's right. true. And so that's what Levis homes in on. And Levis says, Levis doesn't deny that uh, technology is hugely important. He doesn't deny that prosperity has its benefits for us. But he says, well, wait, is it really the case that the Industrial Revolution in its first phase was so unproblematically a benefit? Uh, it brought untold dislocations and suffering. Uh, and it also was, surely, he says, uh, part of what made the idea of prosperity seem like the only or the overriding goal that societies should pursue, that the more things take off in that direction, the more other values are in some way disregarded. Mm. And again, Levis makes the characteristic move of saying, well, who diagnosed this? Who understood that this route of prosperity was more complicated and that there were losses as well as gains. Of, of course, it's the novelists and the literary figures who were critics of this, mm. people like Dickens, but also people like Carlyle or Matthew Arnold. Um, and so, again, I think it's quite difficult to get Levis's position clear because he's not simply saying, and he's certainly not saying he's against progress altogether or he's against science, he's not saying that, but he's saying uh, that we're getting to the stage where we find it almost hard to articulate some set of values that will be persuasive in the public world other than increased prosperity. We're getting so far along this road and that one of the ways to complicate our thinking about this and improve our public discourse would be to go back to the critics of industrialism and see what it is that they, at the time, rather prophetically, saw were going to be some of the narrowing of human horizons and some of the very instrumental ways of thinking that were going to come out of this and of do better about avoiding those sorts of pitfalls now. So right. uh, in a way, not only are both these lectures more about uh, economic progress and those large issues than the bookseller and the book buyer thought they were, but they're also both more about history. They're all more contesting the story of progress of the last 200 years. Right. You mentioned um, uh, there are aspects of uh, uh, I can't remember the words you actually used, but but certainly in your in uh, in the introduction to the book, 
you talk about aspects of how Leibniz's prose was received, and there were people who commented on the fact that uh, his writing uh, was sometimes difficult to parse, and there were uh, it was some somewhat uh, it was too convoluted at times. There there were critical remarks given mm. to not just what he was saying, but the manner in which he was expressing it, and. I took this as a sense that uh, part of Levis's is, 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 is main battle is against this form of triteness, against right. simplification, a, 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 against mm -hmm. this idea of pat phrases and hackneyed phrases. As a, as a literary critic and as somebody who was steeped in the tradition of English literature and believed in the, in the power of English literature and literature in general, he chose his words extremely carefully. And, and there's a certain sense that uh, a certain sense of expectation that I got that, well, this, this Jolly Well should be actually difficult to read. You have to make an effort to, right. to read this. They're, they're, it's not just one bland, pat phrase after another, but part of the level of critical engagement is actually going slowly, uh, making the effort to parse things, and, and, uh, and, and being diligent not only as a writer, but also as a reader. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, he says, you don't combat the power of cliché in our culture by replacing one cliché with another. Uh, or as we might say now, you know, you don't combat the power of sound bites just by another sound bite. What you need to do is in some way offer another kind of discourse which, uh, as you summarize it, will, will in some ways slow things down a bit, bring out the complexity, um, allow for a certain amount of uncertainty, and have a prose which makes the reader in some way think through the reading, not just receive it in some passive way. Um, and it's true of um, Levis's writing that it's often got that sinewy but highly charged and slightly convoluted sense of a lot packed into a sentence. It's very rarely just subject, verb, object in some simple way. It's subject, but the subject is this verb, of course, when that, that adverb, that verb, and then the whole proliferation of subclauses about the object of it. And that, Levis says at one point, he's very self-conscious about this, he says, oh, I know people charge that I write badly. Um, but as you say, he, it wasn't that he wrote carelessly in the least. Um, what he thought he was doing was trying to bring the reader, in a sense, up short make the reader lose that easy assimilation of just taking things in with only half an eye or half an ear, so that you find yourself having to do more thinking when you read him, and perhaps as a result become less susceptible to being taken in by the glib phrases and the things that oversimplify, because you've engaged with, you've had your, your receptors, as it were, opened up a bit by this more complicated kind of prose. And uh, his own writing does that, and then of course he, his usual message is that one of the ways in which we can um, help to cultivate this and, and to some extent train people to read and think better is by reading good writing, right. uh, not just by reading the cliches of the daily press or the politicians' speeches. And so again we come back to the importance of an education in literature. So he says all this in 1962. Uh, and then what happens? How is this received? And, and, and what is, well, how is the lay of the well, land? <laughs> what happens is that a, 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 a great mountain of garbage is poured upon his head, really. <laughs> I mean, that's to say he's thought to be immensely offensive. Uh, the, what you mentioned is the rather personal aspects of the attack on Snow and the outspokenness of it. 
I mean, as you say, there are lots of good lines in, in the lecture, which um, if, you, if you can read it at this distance, you can enjoy. But, you know, to say of Snow, as he does at, at one point, Snow is a, no, I can't bring myself to say that. <laughs> Snow thinks of himself as a novelist, you know, all those kinds of things. I mean, there's a lot of uh, disdain and a, and a good deal of anger in Leavis's discussion. Well, that was thought to be unacceptable. It was, I mean, he really was thought to be beyond the pale in this respect. Even some people who may have had their reservations about aspects of Snow's writing or, or Snow's public career thought that Leavis um, really was going beyond the limits of acceptable discussion. And I think in the initial furore, although there were a few people who wanted to speak up for Leavis's case, I think in general in the initial furore, attention concentrated much more on the... Uh, the question almost of good manners, the question of the decorum of the exchange, than it did on these quite big subjects that you and I have identified the substance, here. Really. There's not really very much. Nobody, as Levis himself uh, said when he came back to comment on this some years later, nobody really has addressed the central point about the shallowness of ideals of prosperity unless they're informed by some large idea of human flourishing. Right. And he was quite pleased by, by, the, by the talk, right? Did, didn't he say, did, yeah. didn't I read that, that he thought it was the greatest speech he ever made? Or <laughs> well, he, 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 he says, we can't quite tell how, how tongue-in-cheek this is because he's actually saying it to the publisher whom he's trying to persuade to publish it. But, so he may not be entirely uh, straightforward about this, but he said very rightly, it will become a classic. Um, <laughs> he, said it at, he said it at the time when it was being you know, completely dumped on in this way. Um, it didn't become a classic, I think is, is the first thing to say. In the 60s, it remained, uh, apart from those who were already very well disposed to Levis, uh, it remained, I think, a byword for excess and uh, personal abuse. But I think what's happened with time, and it's very interesting how this has happened, Snow's reputation, if anything, has gone down. I mean, it always happens to people perhaps after their death that they go out of the public eye and so on. But I think also the the level at which Snow was writing has become clearer. Uh, it doesn't stand up all that well over time. Mm. And by the same mechanism turned round, if you like, a few readers, I wouldn't say this is a large number yet, but a few readers have come to see in Levis's critique an interesting example of the tactics that might need to be involved if you're really going to take issue with a big public figure who has a lot of almost unreflective public support behind him. You're going to have to do something which will jolt people out of their uh, comfort and which will um, in some way call attention to the mechanism which put this person there in the first place. And so I think as, a, as an exercise in cultural criticism, as a piece of deliberately provocative writing, uh, Levis's lecture is being reassessed a little now. Uh, and the qualities of his prose, which still make it difficult sometimes to read uh, at first reading, but are, I think, coming to be seen better in the way you described a moment ago as um, a necessary set of weapons in some ways mm. to, in this, I mean, we, we search for metaphors, but maybe this kind of guerrilla warfare <laughs> that he wants to wage, you know, he, he, he's, he's going to be in, in a minority, he's going to be in some sense not the ones with, with the, uh, what look like society's big guns at his command, but actually by these series of attacks and detonations and, as we said earlier, taking away the podium, that, that big public position will start to crumble. And I think people have got more interested in that. Well, it's interesting as we look back over time, because as this became clear to me that this, this was 
um, the primary aspect around which the debate really should be looked at or, or, or was, was in fact structured. Maybe debate is not the right word. In fact, the salvos that were fired <laughs> right. from, yes. from different boats yes. passing <laughs> each other. Yes. Um, but to, to, to look at his perspective, I thought, well, isn't this interesting? 1962, here's somebody who is making acerbic comments on celebrity culture. Isn't this interesting? 1962, here's somebody who is talking about the value of rigorous skeptical inquiry and the fact that we shouldn't necessarily be solely and exclusively and wholeheartedly concerned with economic prosperity without looking at the wider picture at all. That's not my, uh, that wasn't my understanding of, of, of what people were thinking or what they were worried about in 1962. Um, and if anything, it seems as if the situation from Liebes's perspective has only become drastically worse. I mean, the things that he was most concerned about, the unflinching notion of, of accepting an authority figure without any critical inquiry, uh, critical uh, well, uh, assessment whatsoever, yeah. objective critical assessment whatsoever, is certainly worse today in an age when everybody is hyping themselves as, as an authority figure. Everybody is promoting themselves willfully. Everybody is trying to scream from the loudest possible rooftops on their blogs or on their this or on their that or getting up as a pundit on CNN or, 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 or what have you. And it seems as if there are, there are real issues with looking at the role of what we're trying to do in society, whether it should only be looked at just strictly the filter of economic prosperity, what the role of, uh, of universities should be, what the role of uh, uh, how one should more critically train uh, the young minds. And so enter Stefan Collini, uh, who from my perspective now, my enlightened perspective as the relatively enlightened book purchaser. And now you've gone home and read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that helped. Yeah. <laughs> um, now says, my gosh, there are some very, very strong similarities between these points that F.R. Levis is making and these points that one Stefan Collini is making and what are universities for. Um, do you regard yourself in some ways, perhaps in you, you do it in a much nicer way, by the way. You don't uh, so far, anyway. Uh, <laughs> that I've seen. But do you regard yourself as, as somehow following in in, in the footsteps of of, of Levis in some of these themes? Ooh, well, of course, you touched on lots of things in that uh, comment. Well, I, so I'm gonna, I have a problem I, with these questions. They go on and on. <laughs> no, no, but I'm going to try. And, I'm going to try and go back to some of them because they're all they're all things that, as you know, exercise me. Um, so uh, let me come back to your final question about sure. me and go a long way back and say that um, I think first of all you're right that Levis was um, diagnosing something that we perhaps have called the mechanics of celebrity culture although I don't think it was called that in 1962 um, and it wasn't just in his attack on snow it's quite interesting from our perspective, we think of Levis, if we think of him at all now, we think of him as having fulfilled the role of what is now called the public intellectual. There he was an academic, but he gets onto the public stage in certain ways, attracts wider attention and debates these issues. He was himself very skeptical of that role. Um, he saw people, his own contemporaries, who he thought did do this, and were often on the radio or writing in the Sunday papers or whatever it might be. And he thought that by and large, insofar as they succeeded in becoming fairly well-known, becoming celebrities, it was because they gave society what it wanted to hear. Right. They rather 
rather sold out to the standards of their rigorous intellectual inquiry, which should have been their primary task. So in an interesting way, he, uh, he is not a sheltered academic in the traditional sense. And as I said at the very beginning of talking about him, he's not a scholar in that way in which we think of the scholar patiently accumulating a lot of detail about a rather recondite subject and then very impersonally helping uh, the advance of knowledge another small step or two by publication. His own sense of the role of the literary critic was already something much more engaged and more personal than that. And he brings that to his treatment of public themes. Again, it's this very uh, impassioned address uh, and something that's thought to be of very direct relevance to our lives. It's not yeah. at all removed in that way. And yet, this is why he's such an interesting uh, but, but complicated figure, I think. He's not trying to assume the stage as a public intellectual of the traditional sort. He doesn't think uh, that that's the, the way to go. So he wants to, in some sense, reserve his independence. Mm. He wants, if anything, to slightly cultivate the position of outsiderness or being rather under-attended to while addressing the big public realm. And that's a very tricky kind of voice to maintain, I think. And of course, some of his critics would say, well, he actually wanted more public attention than he was ever willing to allow. But he did, he did go in search of this a little. Well, that's, that's a possible reading. But I think it's nonetheless true that he, he not only diagnosed an early form of celebrity culture, but that he shied away from it to some extent himself. Mm. I think that's true. And then the other big theme that you touched on is, well, Nowadays, even more than in 1962, we're much more exercised about the question of how far economic prosperity as the goal can adequately encompass things that societies ought to be aiming at. Um, and again, I think I would say here that we mustn't exaggerate Levis's uniqueness or singularity. I mean, in this respect, I think I would put him in quite a long tradition of social critics mm -hmm. who have engaged with this going all the way back to the figures he quotes in the sure. 19th century, people like Ruskin and so on, who've raised many of these questions. Different moment, different circumstances, but in some ways the same kind of question. Uh, doesn't the, the driven impetus of an industrial society lead us to neglect non-economic values in some way? That sort of question. And Levis is, is encouraging us to think about those questions, but I don't think he's particularly... Uh, alone in doing that, sure. or, or even, or even in the in the 1960s uh, alone, but I do think that he does it with um, with a with a particular uh, verbal and rhetorical force that is worth going back to. In other words, there are things about Levis's views in general which I wouldn't endorse. I think he's much more. Uh, conservative than he needs to be. He's rather horrified by some aspects of the contemporary world, uh, changes in mores that uh, you or I might think of as, as desirable and certainly harmless. He's rather censorious about. There's a Puritan strain mm -hmm. in, in Levis, which I certainly wouldn't share. And as we've said already, there's certainly a very bellicose strain in him. <laughs> but I think in his concern with the the means of making criticism effective, he's still very interesting reading for us. And, and, and in that sense, I, I hope people will return to thinking about his, his use of the tactics of criticism. So, that's those two, so then we come back to uh, the, the twist in the tail uh, of your question. You know, do I think that I'm trying to do something similar myself? Not really, I think. Um, one of the many reasons I don't is that 
the way Levis positions himself depends very much on an us and them divide, I think. There's, there's the small beleaguered minority of true seers, and then there are the great mass of the, the deluded or the, or the benighted who, who are taken in by the official or the dominant mm. discourse. That seems to me a very unhelpful way to think about a complicated society of the kind we live in or that he lived in. Um, there are many more plural voices than that, surely. And, and, and also, one risk of that position, that rhetorical position, is of being a bit condescending to most people, as though they are sort of rather easily duped by things, when quite often you know, people don't always believe everything they see on television or read in the newspapers no, and have, have their own means of reflecting on these things. Right. Uh, and don't need to be certainly stirred. not our audience anyway. I can <laughs> no, I'm sure that's true, <laughs> and they certainly don't need to be stirred by by levers, or still less by me. So I, I don't I don't take to his that rather Manichaean division in, mm. into the, 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 the small forces of light and the large forces of dark. Um, I think also he had a pretty conservative view of what might be taught in the university. Uh, I mean, that's to say, again, he. Uh, stuck very much with the traditional subjects, and since the early 1960s, the world of universities, this is true in Britain and the United States, but I think most universities around the world in developed societies, this is true, have expanded their range a lot. A great deal more of the cultural and social and intellectual concerns of our time now are, in some sense, addressed and negotiated in universities, maybe for better or worse, but they are. Universities have become more important, but also more encompassing than that. And that seems to me not something we should we should poo-poo or resist. Levis, I think, was very um, well. He was more than cautious. He was he was rather hostile to that whole expansion. He thought of universities as having a, a rather purer mission, I think, and probably confined to a smaller number of people. And then within English itself, his his discipline. I mean, although he was a, in some respects a terrific evangelist for English literature as a subject, um, within English. He very much encouraged the study of the great texts. It was a rather unproblematic question of how they are the great texts or why they've become the great texts, but there are these great works of literature, and we should never confuse the second or third rate with the first rate, and by and large, we should study the first rate. Um, and that made him, I think, in some respects, intolerant or at least underappreciative of a range of other types of writing sometimes of lighter genres, sometimes of more satirical or playful and writing. Presumably more contemporary literature of his day as well. I mean, exactly. it's very difficult to, to, yeah. to assume that you're, the guy down the street is in the, in the canon, as it were. Exactly. Uh, I mean, when, he, when Levis was a young critic, uh, the two figures he most championed were still alive and writing, T.S. Eliot and D.H. Lawrence. Famously, as Levis's career went on, they became the last figures he thought were of any consequence. And in fact, he became more and more critical of T.S. Eliot. Uh, so as you rightly say, nobody then in the next few decades really measures up. Well, again, I, I think that's, um, it's, a, it's a kind of uh, conservatism or, or restriction of perspective that we're familiar with in critics and scholars, but it's not one I think we should encourage. Right. Uh, I mean, I would say that the contemporary literary world is hugely expanded since Levis's time, partly because the Anglophone world of literature has expanded so much. There's so much good writing going on in so many countries uh, that use the English language in some way or other, which is not Britain. Um, and that the study of these things in universities is to be welcomed, I think, and it enriches the story. So there are, there are all kinds of ways in which Levis, I think, now looks to us um, to have some tastes and to take up some positions which really just don't 
speak to us and, and, and which I wouldn't encourage. Sure. But fundamentally, fundamentally that attempt to use a, a delicate and complex prose which he'd honed in writing about things within the universities and for a more specialized audience to take it outside and to make it in some sense tell in public debate and to help provoke more reflection and questioning in society about some of its received platitudes. That task, which I think he was in, a, in an angular and awkward and not always easy way good at, I think that's something about him which I still very much respect. And that you do, I would, I would argue. I mean, if, if one looks at what are universities for, and one looks at the way in which you try to engage a broader public, the way, you, the way in which you try to be provocative, the way, you, the way in, uh, by which you use language, uh, I would, I mean, you tell me, but, but my... No, it's better if you tell me. It's <laughs> much, more much more positive if you do it. <laughs> my, my sense is you're, you're trying to draw attention to questions that you feel need proper reflection, need a sense of... of of legitimate critical faculty, we're too much. We're swimming in these cliches, and, and so let, let, let me give you some examples of the sorts of things that, that came up in my mind uh, that struck me as very Levis-like in the structure, orientation, or substance, perhaps, and not necessarily in style. And I'm certainly not qualified to say. Um, so when you when you ask these questions about what universities for, how they should be measured, and you talk about evaluation, and and you uh, you, you, you you do a few things. You use, you use business. Uh, there's this one paragraph when you're, you're talking about the business model, business analogy. And you have two separate paragraphs when you describe what you do in business speak, followed by what your actual job is. Yeah. Right? And so again, this is not done in nearly a, as bellicose a way or as coruscating a way. You're not, you're not attacking the, the, the head of IBM or whatever in, <laughs> in a personal right. way. But you, you take issue with these, these pat trite phrases that are being thrown around, uh, that, uh, that are, uh, universities should be more like businesses and this is why. They should be more efficient and this is why. And then you draw attention to, well, what does it mean to be efficient at a university? Okay. How should we measure these things? What, what do these numbers actually mean? Where do they come from? How can we apply them? Um, rather than just, uh, just sinking into the, these, these ridiculously banal stereotypes of, well, there are all these old fogies that are stuck in their ivory tower and they're trying to suck on the public teat as much as possible. Um, not only are you pointing out, well, this is actually a false depiction of what's going on for the most part, um, but you're saying, well, let's, let's carefully look at, at how we should make these measurements. Let's, let's try to get a sense of what's actually going on. Uh, another, um, uh, another cliche that I've I've personally found incredibly frustrating when, when, uh, when non-academics tend to look at the academic world is they invoke this notion of competition. This, this, this sense of, as you said, there's this Champions League out there, yeah. that everybody's competing with themselves for talent, as if, first of all, there's a fixed amount of talent in the world, um, as if it is not to all of our benefits to have a wonderful university that, that, uh, that flowers in whatever, Shanghai or, or in North Carolina, or, or that somehow that would detract from the greater pool yeah. of other people who are elsewhere. And, and this is very, very simplistic in many ways, which is not to say that the people who are making these claims are necessarily simplistic. They might be very sophisticated. Those claims might apply to their own particular realm, but they shouldn't unthinkingly transport them 
and, 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 and unthinkingly react in a cliched and trite manner. And that's the sense that I have of, of reading your book, that it's not as if you're giving concrete prescriptions. Oh, we have to do this and that. And you know, my Colini's book is a white paper to, to right. give to people. It's more a provocation, an intellectual provocation, so that people can think more deeply and recognize when they, in fact, have been invoking these tired old cliches that they should, they should disregard. Well, can I take you with me wherever I go? <laughs> I mean, this is wonderful. <laughs> but do you feel inspired by, like, do, do you get a sense that you are trying to do, not necessarily in the same way, but that you are participating in that great critical endeavor of which Levis is a, is a prime example? Would that be well, a good way to say it? Um, <laughs> yeah, a delicate topic. I, I think one of the things that um, exercises me about this is that universities are and have to be and should be answerable to the public of their societies. I don't take the view that they have some you know, God-given right to exist and, and should be given public money or private money to do it and just left to get on with it. I mean, there is clearly a social interest uh, lodged in universities and some account must be given of what the function universities perform is and, and to some extent how well they're doing it. And I think what has tended to happen in the last few decades is that the only language which politicians and administrators and public figures feel will have undisputed acceptance from the public at large is the language of contributing to economic growth. Uh, that there are various other things that might traditionally have been said about universities but those are in various ways contentious or perhaps not very popular uh, or dismissed as subjective values or the values of an old elite or whatever. The thing is not looked at very closely, but there is a strong sense among the, the policy-making and administrative and media classes, I think, that the only thing that's really going to justify public support in whatever form for universities, justify the whole project of universities, and universities on a large scale, which our societies now will have, uh, the fact that they've expanded so much in number and in the range of their activities makes the question more central mm -hmm. and more politically pressing. Mm -hmm. So the, the only thing that will do that is that. And the, I think the result of that is, and this is where we come to the, uh, the very eloquent summary you gave of, of what I hope to try and argue, the result of that is there's been a transposition of some very low-grade measures from the world of business, commerce, and finance to these other cultural and intellectual worlds. We've got to find some way of... Uh, measuring output as if it were the same sort of thing right. because what we're doing is doing what business schools have told administrators in the last generation or two has got to be done to every organization you've got to see how you can reduce costs and increase productivity you've got to stop people getting uh, stuck in uh, outdated ways of proceeding we've got to see if we can't um, bring in new ideas and get rid of old personnel we've got to run it like a very sharp fanged business and in all that, I think, what we get, as you said, are these um, un unexamined assumptions imported wholesale from, not even really from the active business world. They're not what some of the best businessmen and top financiers would say about their own mm -hmm. activities, but the kind of second-hand reporting of and, and perception of what is business-like about business. We get those right. cliches and categories imported into the judging and assessing of universities in ways which doesn't capture what universities are so good at. And I think the, one of the great risks of this is that in the name of making universities more 
useful to society, we risk damaging the ways which in the long term universities are so valuable to mm -hmm. society. And it's trying to um, prompt us to put into circulation a language and, and set of assumptions that comes a bit closer to trying to capture what universities really do and are good at that, that stirs me to write this. Now, I think that's a very, I, I don't think I've done it all that successfully, and I'm not sure anyone can. It's very difficult to capture the, the, the characteristics of that kind of open-ended pursuit of inquiry because uh, it, it, it spills over. It, it is, in fact, very disciplined, but it looks as if it slightly wanders. You can't always tell in advance what the big questions or interesting questions are going to be. You're going to have to allow the people who do it a good deal of leeway to judge for themselves. The more you try and prescribe in advance what they must do, the less likely they are to make the kind of new discoveries or come up with the new perspectives which are going to be what, in the end, you really want from them. So right. it's a very tricky relationship, I think. You, you can't give a very exact, you certainly can't give a quantitative account of what it is that intellectual work does at its best. And you are going to have to give the people who do it a certain amount of space in which to get on with it, while at the same time asserting this general sense of accountability, this general sense of social ownership of the work of universities. And that tension at the moment, I think, is very much tipped towards the accountability side and trying to find, rather desperately trying to find, some language and categories that politicians and others can stand up and say, we've got the 18th best university in the world and productivity last year rose by 11% and right. you know, you're all persuaded by that. It's gone too far in that direction. In a way, I want us to question that a bit and see if we can't make space for some of the other ways of talking about the, the, the independent quality of good thinking, and, because the two are inseparable in the end of good teaching, of making thinking happen in others in some way, which is such a, an indirect and chancy business, to, to find language which is going to make it more possible for that to maintain itself in the public realm. And yeah, that's what I hope to contribute to. Right, and for me as a reader, um, this, this seems structurally very similar to what you were saying earlier uh, about Levis, which is why I keep making these right. comparisons. And I'm so, sure you're, you're going to make me into Levis before we finish. Well, yeah. I can see. <laughs> well, we all have our missions. That's, that's mine, right? Right. So <laughs> that's my days. But, but just, as, just as you said, look, when responding to Snow, it wasn't as if Levis was saying, we should ignore economic criteria. It wasn't as if he was saying, technology is pernicious. It's a, it's a horrible thing. We shouldn't teach science. We shouldn't be focused on that. We should all spend all of our days reading D.H. Lawrence. He wasn't saying yeah. any of that at all. He wasn't denying the importance of, uh, of, of harnessing the fruits of the scientific world. He wasn't denying the, the, the enormous impact that technology has, has given us all and led to better lives and so forth. He was merely saying, to look at things, well, anyway, this is my sense, so, right. so you tell me, I don't mean to be mm. presumptuous, but my sense was, we, um, that's an important, that's an integral part of the picture, but it's not the only uh, criterion by which we should make these sorts of judgments, and it's not the only focus that we should necessarily right. have. Um, similarly, when, when you're looking at, at the role of a university, you are also not saying, as I'm, I'm guessing, and I'm going to ask you this specifically, some of your critics are portraying you as, oh, this guy's a Marxist. He thinks that the top <laughs> should flow in an unlimited way and that there should be no yes. accountability. You're not right. suggesting right. there should be no accountability whatsoever. You're very well aware of the importance of, uh, of, of, a, of a sense of 
recognizing the value in some broad sense of what universities are giving to society. You recognize the importance of the utilitarian aspect of it. We shouldn't all be studying classical literature, right. or, or, or we wouldn't be, shouldn't be, whatever. Um, but there's, there's a sense of let's not just slap on these tired old cliches. Let's look deeper. That's one aspect of the picture, but let's, let's look deeper than that. And that's my sense of the balance be yeah. between the two yeah. in, in, in the same way. Yeah, well, of course, that's music to my ears to hear that account, because I think that is right, and as you imply, there have been some uh, initial respondents or reviewers of my book who, for whatever reason, have uh, decided that I'm saying um, universities are all that matters or universities are a world unto themselves, universities should be given the resources to it and can tell society that it can get lost and is not answerable to all. I, as you say, I, that seems to me an idiotic position to ascribe to anybody and it's certainly not my position. Uh, but as you also say, in, and this is why I tried to start where I did, in working towards finding a language which can express that accountability and that answerability adequately, we've got to do something more than see universities as either a kind of glorified apprenticeship scheme in which we train people for particular specified jobs in industry or as some kind of industrial lab in which we come up with inventions that will uh, make products that can be sold or cure some disease. Those are good things to do, of course, and I say very clearly in the book those are things in, in appropriate form for their time, which universities have always done in some way. They've always had these practical purposes. But if, if we only think those are the two kinds of things worth doing, those two aspects of an economic contribution, just training a kind of apprentice workforce or just applying technology to producing industrial products, then we don't really need universities. Universities are there to do a more complicated range of things than that. Those are very narrow functions, which they will also take care of to some extent, but they won't take care of them as well unless they're also free to do their larger project right. of intellectual open-ended inquiry. And that's the thing that it seems to me it's very hard to um, communicate in public debate, that rather than my saying universities have no responsibility to society or universities don't contribute to the benefit of society. I want to say that unless we allow them the freedom to do what they're really good at, we will lose the benefit to society that they give. Um, and yeah, so then I do try a variety of tactics to, to attack the, the language about that. I mean, one that you may remember, I, I'm constantly meeting this wherever I read about this subject. I have a little riff on the use of the idea of the real world mm. as a, you know, when, when critics weigh in, they quite often say, well, oh, well, that's all very well, you know, but it's all a little uh, airy-fairy. In the real world, you know, at the end of the day, it's what's on the bottom line that matters, and then they go off right. and develop that. Well, you know, that picture of the so-called real world is a, itself a fiction. It's a, it's a world in which, you know, these, there are these robots who pursue profit and do nothing else. Right. And, you know, then they <laughs> presumably keel over and die. Although, as I said in the book, that their picture of the world never mentions them dying because then they start to worry about all the things we worry about in universities, about the meaning of life and aesthetic experience and all the other things. So uh, it, it's really partly to challenge those sorts of cliches like that, that, that we... That we we, we, we encounter so often now that we almost don't hear them, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and what we can do to make ourselves hear them and make ourselves therefore hear that they have a point, but that they also have limitations, is, is something that exercises me. As I say, I don't believe I've solved the problem and got it right entirely. But part of the impulse to do the book 
was to try to draw attention to those ways in which so much of the discourse about universities now has almost by second nature, almost by inadvertence in some ways, absorbed this language and so narrowed the sphere of debate about them so much and how damaging that can be. So you said, you said that it's, it was difficult for people to appreciate this. Why? <laughs> uh, wh why, is it why is it difficult? I mean, it, it's one thing for people not to agree. Right. It, it's another thing for them not to, not to appreciate it, not, not, to, not to have uh, an, an ability to engage in a dispassionate or maybe even a passionate uh, discussion with you. Well, I think let, let, let's, let's, let, let's um, get the picture more in balance. I mean, I think there have been quite a few, uh, well, first of all, there's lots of very positive responses to, mm. to this case when put in the book and in some earlier essays, very positive indeed. There have been some who've, in, who've not entirely agreed, but engaged in a, in a very right. you know, interesting way. Uh, quite hard hitting sometimes, but that's, I think, all to the good. Sure. Um, so the reactions we're talking about are, are not all reactions. Sure. I'm not even sure who could quantify, but I'm not even sure they're the predominant ones, but there's a significant uh, slice of it. I think one element that comes into this, and um, I mean, other people would have to say whether they recognize this from their own societies as well, but it's an element uh, that I think is familiar in Britain, that somebody writing about universities, who is, it says on the book, a professor at Cambridge, who is claiming that there are inadequate aspects to the current treatment of universities and the current language about universities is assumed almost by virtue of that address, you know, his postal address is as important as anything he's saying. Mm -hmm. He's assumed to be some privileged complainer who just wants to be left with the, the assumed easy and well-padded life that academics are supposed to have, although anyone who's been in the university these days, I think, would quickly see that's not the whole story, um, uh, and that he shouldn't complain. Uh, and I think there's a bit of that reaction. Um, that the thing is prejudged even before you get going. I think another thing, and I say this, uh, people can uh, have their own responses to this, obviously, I think that the attempt to be a bit playful in one's language, the attempt to use a certain amount of satire or even attempted wit in dealing with other people's views and other people's expressions is a very delicate and dangerous weapon. It can misfire. I think people are very easily offended by this and they think that the person doing it is setting himself up as in some way superior, is sneering, is condescending. And I have to refer to this because I do think this is an element in the reaction to some of the things, again, none of this is peculiar to me, not just things I've written, of course. But I think, but I think uh, to people who, writing about these difficult matters, use those sorts of registers of prose, make the thing in some sense playful rather than simply a matter of propositional argument. Try various ways to vary the tone of public debate I think we are inevitably playing with fire a bit. I think there are those who find that really upsetting and think that it signifies a, a kind of uh, snobbish aloofness on the part of the person doing the writing. But that's, 
terribly worrisome. Uh, I mean, that's terribly, terribly worrisome. If, if, if we've reached such a stage, regardless of whether I agree or disagree, I might think that what you're saying is complete and total rubbish. You wouldn't be here, of course. But, but, <laughs> <laughs> right, I, 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 I've said enough nice things. Yes, <laughs> good, good. But, but uh, or, or for anyone, let's not talk about you. The very idea that I, that, that it, uh, that somehow one should invoke or that it's implied that one should invoke some self-censorship because, oh, you can't use language in a particularly playful or ironic or sarcastic or, or, or illustrative way because it might offend people who are looking, who, who, would, who would be offended by anything other than, than just a deadpan, uh, rigorous argument. That's a tremendously depressing state of affairs in terms of engagement with the public, in terms of engagement with our critical faculties, in terms of, in terms of living a robust life, for goodness sakes, have a <laughs> laugh occasion. I mean, but, but, but I mean, that, that seems to be part of, so I'm, uh, uh, let me ask a question rather than, right, if, if, this, is, if this is really the case, um, then, then shouldn't you, as the cultural critic, Shouldn't, shouldn't you say, well, I mean, this is what a tenured post at a university is for. Damn the torpedoes and the hell with these guys. Uh, th that's just, let's show, them, let's show them how they should use their critical faculties. And if they don't like it, well, too damn bad. Well, as you notice, I haven't exactly been restrained right. or reticent about um, <laughs> broadcasting my views. I think I wouldn't be quite so sweeping about it. Um, I mean, again, I, I want to say, no doubt, this is the academic voice in me saying um, that, that, that there are a range of reactions which are a bit more modulated. This, I mean, what I was trying to single out was to answer your sure. earlier question, sure, you know, sure. a particular explanation sure. Sure. for why there might be some people who, rather than seeming to focus on what I'm saying, just presume in advance that there's something right. here uh, that, that they want to be rather dis dismissive of. And I would again say, of course, that that's not peculiar to or even in any way perhaps particularly marked in our time. I mean, you can think lots of examples of writers in earlier periods where there's been some uh, sense of, of their uh, transgressing almost unspoken norms. Think that, I mean, for, for, for a long time, this would be true. Anyone who touched on religious topics mm -hmm. uh, could often be uh, sure. condemned in this way. Touching on some issues to do with sex or alcohol, think in the United States in the first half of the 20th century. Somebody who wrote too kind of provocatively about some of these things might have been thought to be first half of the 20th century. What, yeah. what about right now? Well, <laughs> you can you can answer more about that. I'm I'm coming on as the historian here, uh, but I was thinking of a period when uh, even alcohol was a right. more delicate subject. But 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 anyway, the point you know, in general, I think the, 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 this is always. Um, a slightly two-edged sword in relation to some of one's possible readers, and they are they are only some. Um, so I'm not I'm not I'm not as apocalyptic about it as that, uh, uh, and I I don't think that the case is quite as desperate. But I I I I think it's really difficult to uh, engage the attention of readers who already recognize this is a serious issue and who might be prone to dismiss the kinds of arguments I'm putting forward as in some way irrelevant to practice. Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, by, by definition. Almost. Well, almost by definition and also, also because I mean, some of these people would be people in responsible positions running universities and, and running the funding bodies that right. fund universities and so on. And they have a difficult job, of sure. course. Uh, they've got all those political pressures on them. They've got to make the university or the institution work and so on. And I think for some of them to be standing as far back as I'm standing 
and to be focusing on language and assumptions in the way I'm doing can come across as a bit irresponsible. as a bit of a luxury um, and this is again why I come back to this note as, as, as a little bit mocking. You know, some of the pieces, as you know, in that book uh, examine, shall we politely say, some of the language of public reports and government documents about universities and, and you know, I think cannot help but pull some of that language apart. I think that activity is by people who are, you know, feel themselves to be in the trenches and bearing the heat and burden of the day, thought to be a bit self-indulgent. I think that's part of the element of feeling this is not the real world. Well, I understand that, and I understand you're trying to be fair. But from the outside, um, it just seems that if we lived in a world where people weren't saying anything because they were worried about being seen as self-indulgent, then we would have far greater problems. Um, but anyway, I realize that I'm, we're preaching to, the, to each other's choirs <laughs> here. So, so let, let, let me touch on something which, is, um, which you mentioned in your book, which is less, I think, more illustrative of, uh, of, uh, of interesting aspects of academe um, than necessarily provocative or necessarily argumentative. When you talk, when you, when you, when you give a sense of what the humanities is like. And I, and I think there are many people who perhaps are of a scientific persuasion and who will argue, well, the thing about science is, you see, it makes progress. We come up with a decision. We recognize whether the Earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the Earth. Uh, we struggle for perhaps centuries about this, but eventually we get it right, mm. and then we move on, and we do other things, and we build this foundation. Um, and these guys, my goodness, I mean, they're just sitting there in a tower arguing these things century after century, millennia after millennia, and and and... It's, it's, all, it's always, uh, these problems will never be solved. There's no real sense of progress. And, and, I, and this gets back, I think, to, maybe I'm being overly sensitive, but right back to the beginning of, of this distinction between the sciences and, and whatever, the humanities, the arts, whatever you'd yeah. like to call it, the literary intellectuals or, or, or what have you, that, that this notion of superiority of the sciences, that at the end of the day, not only do we have experiment, but we're actually making progress. We know what the heck we're doing, and we're moving towards some kind of goal, and these guys are still arguing the same things. My goodness, they're still invoking Plato. Um, nobody would invoke, no, no physicist would invoke Aristotle today, whereas, whereas yeah. somebody in the humanities would. Um, and you give some, some uh, an interesting perspective on that, which I think is, is, quite, um, is quite illustrative and, 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 uh, and very useful for somebody who would be sufficiently open-minded to, to, to look at what people do in the humanities. And one of the things you say right from the beginning is what people do uh, in, in, in the humanities is they worry. Uh, I don't know if you, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you remember right. Yeah. Um, but perhaps you could talk just a little bit about that because I think this touches on this, this larger theme that we're talking about right from the very beginning of the difference, the, yeah. the sort of typical two cultures notion of the different ways of thinking yeah. and whether we're in fact making progress and, and how you can defend the humanities way of looking at things, what it even means to look at things from that perspective when you don't have the standard invocations of progress. Right, yeah, okay. Well, I think the first thing I would say, and as you know, I say it in the chapter of the book, is uh, we should recognize the ways in which what we're broadly grouping together as the sciences and the humanities, um, 
where on that we put the social sciences and various other disciplines is you know always a matter of dispute it depends where the classification is drawn but let's work with those two endpoints for the moment the, the disciplines in the sciences and the disciplines in the humanities are actually doing much more similar things in a lot of their work than the stereotypical representation of them would suggest i mean a great deal of the work of a scholar in most of the humanities fields is uh, finding the evidence, testing the evidence, drawing up really quite specific conclusions based on the evidence and exactness and precision and clarity and so on. All these values are the same, mutatis mutandis, in the, in the different fields, in the sciences and the humanities. And I think that's important because, apart from anything else, in all kinds of ways, the humanities disciplines make lots of progress. There are all kinds of things discovered and, and uh, newly verified and tested and so on that were not true uh, 10 years ago and certainly not 50 or 100 years ago. Uh, our knowledge of all kinds of aspects of history, culture, and literature and so on has expanded enormously and has become in all kinds of ways more reliable. So that's the first thing I think we, we ought to say. Don't, don't, let's not exaggerate the right. contrast, even in, even in method and the standing of their uh, findings. But then, as you know, I think the main uh, avenue to approach this that, that's helpful is to realize that we're, what we're talking about here is the uh, expansion and deepening of understanding, not just the accumulation of knowledge. I think this is not quite the same thing, and the language of understanding is more useful to us, more relevant, I think, to what we actually do, because... After all, understanding emphasizes that it's something to do with the relation of an understander mm -hmm. to whatever it is that's being focused on. The, the, the trouble with talking about knowledge is it can make it seem like a kind of impersonal product, which you, once you've got it straight, you throw it on the pile and then anyone can come and take it off again and use it or not, and you, you go off and find another piece. And the emphasis on the understander, I think, partly brings home to us how important it is to, in some sense, repossess our understanding in each generation. Uh, we, we d it's not only in order to stop it dying out, but also we've got to make it intelligible to us in terms that we live in our time. And that's a lot of what work in the humanities is doing. The changes in society, changes in our world, prompt us as humanities scholars to adopt new perspectives on things which a previous generation thought were settled or to put new questions to things which really just didn't occur then. And in that way, there's a kind of advance because we expand the range of the questions, we, we articulate the answers in ways that feed into our concerns more, but it also doesn't look like linear advance because our questions were different from the previous generations, and in some sense that has to be so. I mean, I, I think I give in the book one of the most obvious um, examples of the way uh, a whole set of questions are opened up by changes in society that reshape fields in the humanities is the way in the last generation the issue of gender has just, I think, I mean, this is, of course, a matter which can be uh, made fun of or parodied in a reductive way, but surely the, the truth here is that there are just a range of questions about human history and human writing and human expression and human experience which were not attended to Indeed. at all adequately before. And or which, at all, perhaps. Well, or at all, maybe, yeah. or at least in other ways. I don't say we've, we've done it adequately for, you know, in our own time. It's not, I'm not triumphalist about sure, it. Sure, sure. But we've started asking to notice some things that were not previously noticed well enough. And that's affected a lot of these disciplines. I mean, English literature has a range of 
books to, to write about and questions to put to those books, which just were almost unthinkable 30 or 40 years ago. Um, so I think that there is a kind of advance and, and that there are changes. It just doesn't look like the model of advance in the sciences. Although I would just open a small parenthesis here and say, of course, even that picture of the sciences, many scientists and philosophers of science say, would say doesn't apply so simply to the sciences either. It's not simply a purely cumulative picture there, but often a kind of paradigm shift in what kind of thing uh, uh, you're trying to relate to what other kind of thing and looking at it in another way. Yeah. Is it disputable? Yeah, yeah. they're wrong. Those yeah, things. yeah. You, you belong to that school, <laughs> but you would acknowledge that there's another school. There is. Sure. And, uh, politely acknowledge, in fact, okay, that they're wrong. Good. Yes. Well, politely acknowledge that they're wrong, as they would about you. Uh, and so uh, that parenthesis just says, let's not um, kind of reify the position sure. of the sciences either. So I think that way of, 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 of making the picture more complex and remembering that what we're talking about here is uh, as it were, the ways human understanding functions in human experience means that the humanities are constantly pushing new boundaries. It's just that the, the, where the boundaries, as it were, are found changes because life in each generation changes. Right. So let's, let's go back uh, to this whole notion of the two cultures. Um, we have, so, so I think... Uh, People should have a clearer understanding of what actually transpired back in 1959-1962. Uh, they should have some sense, I think, of, uh, of, the, of the context of the debates, so or the context of the salvos that were being fired. Um, the influences that they had in some people who were, I would argue, to some extent still uh, doing their utmost to force people to think critically about these issues. And, some extent. So I would, I would regard you, so correct me if I'm wrong, but I would regard you certainly as somebody who is carrying on the tradition of critical inquiry of looking at some of these broader issues that we're talking about, not only in your research, but in your public outreach, as it were, to be, to be moving forward. But as far as the general public goes, there was this debate that happened. It, it entered the, the public consciousness, loosely put, uh, between uh, my bookseller and, and, and mm. myself as the, as the purchaser. Um, so here we are 50 plus years later, uh, who cares? Why should we look at this again? Are people going to look at this again? Is this going to be something, uh, is this going to be a lodestone that uh, the people will hopefully start framing a debate in and in a, uh, getting a clearer sense of, of broader issues? Is this merely a part of intellectual history that we say, oh, it's interesting things happened in Cambridge 50 plus years ago? Or, or will it have... Will it have legs to some extent? Yeah. Will it be relevant today? Yeah. Well, you predict now, after our conversation, that a phrase like merely intellectual history is going to have my, uh, <laughs> my critical <laughs> bristles rising a little bit. Uh, because it seems to me one of the ways we, we think in our own time right. productively is by engaging with these, these works. And uh, I mean, if we took other examples, we would surely say that uh, you know, people, people are constantly being driven to re-examine their thoughts about freedom or freedom of expression by reading Mill on Liberty or constantly being driven to think about the role of the state or something by reading Rousseau on the general will. Uh, <clears throat> and I think in a somewhat similar way, that cluster of issues that we've tried to identify in this conversation, uh, both about uh, the identity of the humanities and the sciences and their relation, but these larger issues about prosperity and goals of human life, and then the issues about how to address that in critical terms. I think that people 
do return to this episode somewhat, and I would say that they will continue to, because in, in slightly stark ways, the two protagonists crystallize certain positions. I mean, that's to say, the, the very um, ways in which Snow might be thought to be a little bland, um, a little conventional in what he has to say, helps make him seem to be representing a very widely held view. As we've agreed, when you get closer, it doesn't look quite like that. Mm. But, but he has that representative function, I think, because of those qualities. Similarly, Levis, precisely for the things that gave so much offense, is, is the, the, the acerbity and uh, the extremism, in some ways, of his tone, helps focus the thought of, well, how do we make this case, uh, if not like that? And so the, that aspect of the clash there, uh, I think, is a, is a kind of economical way for people to re-encounter these issues. Uh, I don't say, uh, I would never say that uh, it's going to be, um, it's not going to be reissues of any of those books, are not going to be bestsellers. But Snow's uh, Two Cultures material has had a very long life uh, in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Even though it's been much criticized, people have gone back to it and, and continually reread it. Levis's, I think, is more in doubt. It seems in some ways less far-reaching, perhaps. It seems less international, mm. and it chimes less well with a lot of the official preoccupations of, of our time and, and, and in other countries' time as well. But nonetheless, I'm fairly optimistic that the, the qualities we've tried to isolate in Levis's attack are something that even if people don't find themselves very sympathetic to Levis's performance of that role, they're going to have to grapple with in some form or another if they want to take issue with this kind of bland endorsement of prosperity and this, uh, the ways in which uh, the, the, the cliches of our time become cliches, become almost second nature to us. If we're to be alert to that, then we're going to have to seek inspiration from, if not Levis's attack itself, writing like that. And I think in the long run, having Levis's attack brought back to our attention and having some of this characteristic of it uh, focused on is going to be helpful in encouraging people to do that. So I think there'll be some life in it yet. Mm. That's great. I said before I let you go, is there anything we haven't touched on, any, any point that you'd like to make? I think you summarized very clearly, but is there anything uh, you'd like to add that perhaps we neglected to talk about? No. 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 I'll talk no. to you. Yeah, I think so. All talked out. Thanks a lot, yeah, Stefan. Great. This was great. That was good. Thank I enjoyed that. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About the History of Ideas, along with separate discussions with Martin Jay, Darren McMahon, Pankash Mishra, and Quentin Skinner. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.